earnestly seek to commend yourself to God as an approved worker who has nothing to be ashamed of, handling the word of truth with precision. We're glad you're joining us for today's program, A Word from the Word, with your host, Pastor Tom, who will unpack for us the richness and beauty of the Bible's original languages as they bear on key words and concepts from both Testaments. Our hope is that your walk with God will be strengthened and deepened, and both your understanding and application of God's Word will be enriched, and you'll be drawn to love it more and more each day. And now, here's Pastor Tom. Hello, friends. Thanks for joining me on A Word from the Word. Well, in our revived series this year, oh, that verse means that, we're up to part 38. The original sessions aired in 2022 from January to September and consisted of 31 programs. But now, backed by popular demand, we're continuing to be detectives of the divine. To check out the original 31 archived sessions or catch up on these recent sessions, go to faithtalk1360.com and search under local program podcasts. Once again, friends, let's put on our detective's cap, pull out our spiritual magnifying glass, and strap on our first century sandals. The goal being to protect ourselves from cavalierly and authoritatively barking out what we think a Bible verse means and imposing a modern perspective on it. Bible scholars were asked why people continue to misuse scripture. Their answers included declining biblical literacy, questionable Bible translations, and preachers who don't do their homework. Although Christians say they want to know what Bible passages mean, they often miss their meanings because they're overly focused on what they expect or want to find. How many times, friends, do we want our spiritual quick fix, our biblical morsel for the day, so we can get on with life, rather than taking just a little extra time to investigate the context surrounding these verses we abuse so easily? Shouldn't we want to do the scriptures justice at all cost and respect the Holy Spirit, the author and inspirer of our scriptures? Friends, doesn't it bother you the way it bothers me that we thus far we've earmarked 37 Bible verses that have commonly been misunderstood, mischaracterized, misinterpreted, and as a result misapplied? Isn't it time we faithfully and carefully scrutinize Bible passages we've believed meant one thing because we're discovering they actually mean something quite different? And friends, let me say again, I take no pleasure in shining a spiritual searchlight on or get any glee from critically re-examining texts that have been unsoundly presented by some of us preachers, teachers, and pastors. And you know why. Because the Bible has a story to tell us, doesn't it? It's crying out, actually screaming out to tell us its story. But what do we pastors, teachers, and preachers, and even average Christians often do? We force or manipulate the Bible to tell our story and why I say, shame on us. Well, in today's session, our scripture under scrutiny will be Matthew 5.41, a key statement by Jesus in his Sermon on the Mount, where he said, And whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him two, as the New King James reads. Today's session is called, Walk a Mile in My Shoes? Our English translations seem to be evenly divided between using compel and force. 
the exceptions being two less familiar translations that say impress and one translation that says should anyone press you into service. Some of these more dynamic-driven translations actually aid the reader in uncovering the important military backdrop of this saying. Like the NLT, if a soldier demands that you carry his gear for a mile, carry it two miles. Or the GNT, and if one of the occupation troops forces you to carry his pack one mile, carry it two miles. And once again, our detective sense, along with our handy magnifying glass, prod us to uncover the importance of the cultural, political, and military backdrop of this part of Jesus' sermon, the immediate context being verses 38 through 48, which say, You have heard the law that says the punishment must match the injury, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say, do not resist or set yourself against an evil person. If someone slaps you on the right cheek, offer the other cheek also. If you are sued in court and your shirt is taken from you, give your coat too. If a soldier demands that you carry his gear for a mile, carry it two miles. Give to those who ask and don't turn away from those who want to borrow. You have heard the law that says, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. In that way, you will be acting as true children of your father in heaven. For he gives the sunlight to both the evil and the good. And he sends rain on the just and the unjust alike. If you love only those who love you, what reward is there for that? Even corrupt tax collectors do that much. If you are kind only to your friends, how are you different from anyone else? Even pagans do that. But you are to be perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. Friends, the implied military language and backdrop forces us in our investigation to recognize Jesus was a member of an ethnic minority in a land under military occupation. So, the Jews didn't have the privilege of a free society. The Roman law of conscription or impressment allowed soldiers to force, commandeer, coerce, even seize people to carry their military baggage or backpack for one mile. This only reinforced the oppressive conduct of being subject to the Roman military. Jews were not allowed to resist. Resisting was viewed as rebellion, and harsh punishments were meted out to those who defied them, like flogging or even imprisonment. Imagine yourself there. Wouldn't you do all you could to avoid contact with Roman soldiers? If you saw one coming, wouldn't you turn and walk or run the other way? Maybe duck into a random alley or a stranger's home? Having to carry a soldier's pack was demeaning. It was like forced hard labor, expected for no other reason than you were a Jew. Roman soldiers knew they were above you, and their demands only reinforced the fact that you were a conquered people. After all, this was the definition of oppression, which begs the question, if going one mile was so brutal and demeaning, why would Jesus tell you to go two miles? Ah, we'll see why shortly. And friends, while defying a soldier's demand was a crime punishable by flogging or imprisonment, this same law dictated that a soldier could only force or compel you to go one mile, no more. This way, the Roman military machine balanced out subjugating their citizens with discouraging insurrections. 
Having to carry a soldier's pack was also humiliating. It robbed Jews of their dignity. And why both oppressive and invasive and easily sowed seeds to revenge, enticing Jews to long for a violent overthrow of Rome. This unsettling environment skewed the Jews' understanding of the role of their coming Messiah. For hundreds of years, they were bred to believe that a conquering king Messiah was coming, so naturally they believed Jesus' own ministry would include overthrowing their pagan occupiers, casting them out of Israel. The zealots loathed this law of conscription, and their philosophy of refusing to participate fanned into flame the eventual First Jewish-Roman War, or revolt in 66 AD. You see, friends, these particular statements of Jesus in his Sermon on the Mount, taken out of context and with a cynical mind, make us jump to falsely assuming Jesus is advocated weakly surrendering to bullies and invaders. But Jesus is actually describing people who are strong enough to take control strong enough to give an enemy more than they bargained for, and why Paul instructs believers in Romans 12.21 to not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Here Jesus is not instructing his followers to shrink back and wither, even via a slap, a lawsuit, or the abuse of authority, but rather to do something so contrary to the cultural norm, give away more than the enemy can take. This then demonstrates power in the guise of submission. But responding this way, they provide an outlet for God to show his goodness, despite living under the weight of the evil behavior of others. You see, friends, these responses are literally invincible. They refuse to allow evil or an evil person control the situation. They scream out in very clear terms that any abuse, any insults, cannot overcome the power and influence of Jesus Christ in our lives. These very instructions and commands of Jesus in his Sermon on the Mount would easily have shocked, even stunned his Jewish hearers, because his response to the Roman occupation was so starkly different from many of the other Jewish activists of his time, like the zealots, who were both incensed and frustrated by their oppression, particularly that they lacked sufficient numbers to launch a formal assault on Rome. But when they saw one man, Jesus, exercising his power, they regained their hope because their vision of rabid nationalism caused them to incite their fellow Jews to rebel against the Roman Empire and expel the empire from the Holy Land by military force. Sadly, they even despised their fellow Jews who sought peace and conciliation with Roman authorities. For the zealots, any cooperation with Rome constituted idolatry in the form of recognizing Caesar as Lord in place of their god, Yahweh. So we can understand, friends, why the zealots longed for the coming of the Jewish Messiah. He would deliver them into battle to drive the Romans and other foreign nations out of Palestine. The Messiah would literally restore the kingdom of God, the promised land, to God's chosen people. No wonder Jesus, during his earthly ministry, found himself impacted by the zealots and their mentality. 
We could even surmise that Simon the Zealot was drawn to Jesus for these reasons and became his disciple. We might even surmise that Simon's own nationalistic philosophy only reinforced in the other disciples' minds that Jesus should be viewed as their military deliverer. We actually have New Testament evidence for this idea. In Luke 24, when Jesus happened upon the two disciples heading to Emmaus, their conversation included these two sighing over the fact that their Messiah was executed. But their underlying dismay is brought out in verses 19 through 24, when they, t- they said, Jesus of Nazareth was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. Here it comes. But we had hope that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. Are we connecting the dots here, friends? For these disciples, redemption was national redemption, political redemption, military redemption. They didn't say Jesus would redeem them individually for their sins. These two disciples weren't thinking about spiritual redemption of their souls, only national redemption of their country. This is further solidified by Jesus' conversation with his disciples in Acts 1. After Jesus' resurrection, he appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for the Father's promise of the Holy Spirit. Friends, listen for similar language that was used in Luke 24. In Acts 1-6, the disciples gathered around Jesus and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Let's put on words of our first century lingo that reflect the disciples' first century mindset, okay? Lord, are you at this time going to restore the earthly kingdom to Israel and restore her to her rightful position in the world, ruling over Rome? Perhaps you find this as curious as I do, friends, but Jesus doesn't directly answer their question. Instead, he gives them spiritual marching orders. They... Their spiritual military mission will now entail being filled with the Holy Spirit. In other words, being armed with God's power instead of the world's power of swords and soldiers and marching forth as Jesus' witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and throughout the Roman Empire. So, friends, in this portion of Matthew five thirty-eight through 48, which encircles and provides the context for our scripture verse under scrutiny, Matthew five forty-one, we learn that Jesus is supplying a key teaching moment on the nature of the kingdom of God, as well as the nature of the character of God. What we must see is that God's kingdom, Jesus' kingdom, is not a kingdom of retribution and forced equity based on earthly laws, especially political laws or military laws, even corrupted and co-opted religious laws. Instead, Jesus is demonstrating to us that his kingdom is a spiritual kingdom based on compassion and unconditional love. Ouch! You see, friends, under the previous law-driven culture in Israel, seeking equity or fairness of your enemy through the use of the legal system was extremely important and necessary. 
Listen to Jesus' countercultural teachings of loving our enemy and doing good to those who despitefully use us. Jesus is introducing us to a kingdom that is a topsy-turvy kingdom, an upside-down kingdom, a value-swapping kingdom. Up is now down. Down is now up. Humility is now a virtue instead of being the despised character trait it was in the Roman Empire. Well, let's pause here, friends. If you tuned in late, you're listening to A Word from the Word with me, your host, Pastor Tom. I value you as listeners to A Word from the Word, which is listener-funded. Your financial partnership keeps this program on the air, which also disciples Christians without a church home, plus those of you who may have been wounded by the institutional church. Join forces with me and A Word from the Word by emailing me for support details at a word from the word at minister.com. We'll repeat this info at the end of the program. So, friends, Jesus is communicating to us through practical life experiences that loving our enemies and doing good to those who have despitefully used us actually reflects the character of God. Let's take a moment and think about our own relationship to God through Christ Jesus. What if God sought equity for our own breaking of his laws and commandments? Where would we be? We should drop to our knees and thank and praise God that he is rather merciful, compassionate, and forgiving based on his love for us and the world because of the sacrifice of his son, Jesus Christ. Well, let's connect Jesus' seemingly new truth to going the extra mile, so to speak, in Matthew 5.41. First, some quick facts. Our word translated mile actually refers to the Roman definition of 1,000 paces, slightly shorter than our modern mile. So in effect, Jesus is basically saying, not only do I want you to carry the soldier's pack one mile per Roman law, I want you to carry it an extra mile. Remember now, the soldier dictates the direction you'll go. In reality, friends, we're talking about a total of four miles, because if the disciples go out of their way for the second mile, they've really gone a total of four miles to get back to where they originally were. Imagine with me for a moment, friends, this scenario. Picture it occurring in some form in the here and now in our 21st century lives. A Roman soldier says to a Christ follower, Hey, you, carry my pack. So the Christ follower says, Yes, sir. He then joyfully starts walking along with the soldier. After one mile, the soldier must release you or he breaks the law. So he says, Okay, you can put it down now. But the Christ follower says, I'd really like to carry this pack another mile for you. The shocked soldier? Remember, he thinks himself higher in class than you. Then asks, why would you do that? So you, the Christ follower, reply, I'm a disciple of Jesus Christ, and he told us to do this for you. Then the soldier asks, who is this Jesus that you follow? So by carrying the soldier's pack that extra mile, it not only showed him the love of God, but paved the way for an opportunity to tell him about Jesus. Friends, we can't know how many Roman soldiers became Christ followers during that second mile, but pricking the enemy's conscience could certainly lead to a change in their thinking and their behavior.
Jesus certainly exhibited this attitude by the kindness he showed to individual Romans through the Gospels. After all, Jesus healed a centurion's son in Luke 7. This is repeated in Matthew 8. At the foot of the cross in Matthew 27, a centurion guard declared, Surely this man was the Son of God. In Acts 10, we meet Cornelius, a God-fearing Roman centurion who himself and his household were led to Christ by Peter, who received a vision from God not to dismiss sharing the good news with a pagan family. So, friends, while we are primarily directing our attention to Jesus' statement about going the extra mile and its subsequent impact on a Roman soldier, the immediate and contextual segment of verses 38 through 42 have a similar lesson to teach us. Included in this narrower portion, an enemy is forcing their will and way upon another person, the examples being slapping in the face, being sued, and being pressed into service by a Roman military soldier. I'll expand on this eye for an eye in the Law of Moses for a moment mentioned three times in Exodus 21, Leviticus 24, and Deuteronomy 19. In each occurrence, this law was given to regulate the decisions of judges in a legal and courtroom setting. In the context of a judicial ruling, this was not unjust at all. In fact, the goal was to control and regulate people going overboard in their reciprocating actions against an offender or criminal. Notice Jesus does and find fault with the actual law itself, which was confined to magistrates and its use in a court of law. But in Jesus' day, the Jews were extending this law to be used in private conduct and for exacting personal revenge. Apparently, they felt justified in using the law this way to inflict greater injury on others that they themselves had received. Jesus therefore protested against this illegal use of the law and reiterated that this law had no provision for private or personal revenge. Friends, we sometimes voice a legitimate concern about not resisting an evil person in verse 39. But Jesus was not intending to teach that we should just allow our families to be murdered or even be murdered ourselves rather than resist an intruder or defend ourselves against a criminal action. Both human and divine laws justify self-defense when life is in danger. It certainly cannot be the intent here to teach that a father should just sit coolly by as his family is butchered by savages and not be allowed to defend them. Again, the immediate context comes to the rescue and reveals what Jesus meant by the statement because the second half of verse 39 supplies the proper interpretation. This is a reference to how we respond to insults. Being slapped in the face is a metaphor for being insulted and does not imply literal physical violence. In short, Jesus was telling us to not return insult for insult. Additionally, turning the other cheek does not imply pacifism, nor does it mean we place ourselves or others in danger. Jesus wants us to forgo retaliation for personal offenses. But he wasn't sidestepping or throwing out the judicial system either. Crimes are still to be prosecuted. You see, friends, retaliation is what most people expect and how worldly people act. I recall my New York City days and one time at work going out to lunch, stenciled right on the blacktop near the curb line of several corners were the words, Don't get mad, get even. Turning the other cheek requires help from above, doesn't it? Responding to hatred with Christ's love and ignoring personal slights or insults displays the supernatural power of the indwelling Holy Spirit, doesn't it? 
and responding like this may just afford us the opportunity to share with Jesus, share who Jesus is and why we follow him and obey his commands. And this brings us full circle to our scripture verse under scrutiny, doesn't it? Going the extra mile? Sadly, doing an internet search for going the extra mile reveals a slew of companies whose names and or practices co-opt Jesus' statement. Here, businesses promise to go the extra mile for their clients or customers, but we know that Jesus' statement has nothing to do with improved customer service or making an extra effort for someone. In reality, Jesus' statement talks about how one treats their enemies and not how one treats their customers. So, friends, let's please not employ these skewed or misrepresented meanings of this amazing scripture verse. Amen. Amen. Well, friends, we're at the end of today's program. I hope it's blessed you and challenged you. And as promised, we'll close with an email where you may inquire about how to financially support a word from the word, which is listener funded. Recently, a listener wrote in regarding June 22nd session on Philippians 4.13 with Pastor Tom you have an amazing insight into the actual meaning of the Word of God. You unlock incredible gems of the faith, beneficial to real growth in the Lord. Well, thank you for your encouragement and complimentary feedback. And friends, I love coming alongside those of you without a church home or those who have been wounded by the institutional church. Podcasts are posted at faithtalk1360.com. That's faithtalk1360.com. Just search the menu for local program podcasts, then scroll to a word from the word. Podcasts are also on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. And thanks to my friends and partners at ChristianBody.net, we're broadcasting in over 70-plus countries. Friends, please invest in the mission of a word from the word and help us become fully funded. Well, thanks for listening today, friends. And remember, Jesus loves you. I'm Pastor Tom with a word from the word. Friends, if you would like to let Pastor Tom know what this program has meant to you, Email him at a word from the word at minister.com. That's a word from the word at minister.com.